0: Betches Media presents... Chrissy
1: Teigen referred to Donald Trump as a pussy-ass bitch.
2: Look, he's a sick puppy. He, he shouldn't be He shouldn't be there.
1: Well, I lost half a day of skiing. I'm going to punch him out and I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to be happy. The Betches Sub Podcast. A
3: speaker has not been elected.
1: Hello, hello. This is the Betches Sub Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. I am Amanda Duberman, the news director at Betches...
2: I'm Elise Morales, comedian and Sub newsletter writer, and I'm Millie Tamara's comedian and
1: Sub video contributor. Oh, hello, gals! Thanks for holding down the fort. I'm so I'm so happy to be back and, and see your faces. It has been a minute.
2: Yes. I know it's been a minute and then both of us are going to be, we're, we're coming back together for a brief moment. We are, This is a good
1: time to, uh, to sort of do a little bit of housekeeping before, before next week. Summer's weird, y'all. It's just weird. We're all over the place. And like, you know, I've, I've kind of learned by now and I've heard from a lot of you that most of the time you want to hear just us talk. And so if we can't make that happen, I think best to just give it a, give it a week. (laughs) give it a week. Yeah. Uh, So we're going to take next week off on Monday, June 26th. We will have a bonus episode for you in this feed, but on Thursday we will be off. There's just too much going on for me to put together, for us to put together a show that I know you want to hear. Again, if there is crazy, crazy news, Sammy will save the day and she'll come in and uh, we'll find something to talk about and get something in this feed. But yes, the plan is uh, to take a little bit of a break. I think we deserve a little bit of a break.
2: Yes. Yeah. I'm like, when was the last time we just had a full break? I feel we like we did it like for Christmas, but
1: we had to work time. really hard for it. We had to record a ton of episodes.
2: <laughs> like yeah,
1: it we wasn't did. organic.
3: We <laughs> but yeah. And also that's when we got the crazy Christmas gift of Am I a Bad Feminist for uh, video chatting sex with my Exactly. Boss, uh which was the greatest gift of all, but the greatest gift uh, of all. As you Never can hear it. in all our voices
1: we're burnt out and we need... Oh my God. I was listening to the episode I recorded before I left and I was like, a bitch sounds so tired. Like, oh my God. And that, I love Dr. Kadei and I'm so fucking excited to launch that podcast. We announced it last week. Uh, For some reason in that episode, I said, I was like, gosh, you sound tired. Thankfully she carried it. (laughs) She carried it through, which is why she's going to have a podcast in our feed. But yeah, I was talking to Millie about it yesterday. I was like, can we do a Friday morning? And you know what? The answer to that is always just. Better not. Better mm-hmm. to not. <laughs> I was you willing down. To. I will say Millie was, was incredibly down. flexible. Millie, you guys are both very contrite if you ever have to miss anything, but we're just going to take a fucking break. So tune in yes. today and also after today's episode – Uh, We have I'll have an amazing interview for you with Amanda Zarowski. If you recognize that name, it's because she has really been kind of one of the most prominent people, definitely given the most attention for sharing how Texas's abortion laws impacted her. She nearly died. What she went through is is. truly harrowing. She has explained it many, many times. Her strength is unbelievable. So I chatted with her about what this past year has been like. I think we're all really familiar with her story and I'll play some, some prior clips of her talking about it, but I just really wanted to know more about kind of her and what the past year has been like. Um, and keep an eye out for on sup in general for some of that Dobbs anniversary content. And, uh, we will, we will come back to it later in the show, but we do have to start with a number. I, I think you all know where we're starting today. In this number section, we're all a little nervous. 2069. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to start at 12,500 feet below sea level to where else but the Titanic. I mean, the main news of the week, of course, is the OceanGate submersible vessel, the Titan that has been missing since, since Sunday, right? And it's Thursday. I feel like I keep hearing the oxygen that they had or have left is just ever expanding, which just seems to be some extreme optimism at this point. Not going to get into all of the details here. I think you guys, our listeners, are the same kind of sick fucks that I am, and I have absorbed every single detail. I feel like I know quite a lot now about marine engineering. Plus, this news is going to change quite a lot by the time you listen to this. It's changing constantly, but the basics are the five individuals have or Already or will likely perish after taking a submersible the size of a minivan and operated by a video game controller to the very deep ocean in order to view wreckage from the Titanic. As of Thursday afternoon when we're talking at about 1 p.m., I just got the alert, I'm sure you guys did too, that a debris field has been found near the Titanic wreckage. I, I don't have an amazing imagination, but I can't imagine that could be good news uh, if, <laughs> if you've seen the same videos about what an implosion would mean as I have. I think what struck a lot of people about this story is just like how preventable something like this is. I think that's the way it's that's why it's kind of hit the way that it has. What are some kind of details about this story that have really like gripped you in particular? Why do you think it's become such a phenomenon?
2: You know, the thing that has really struck me about it, I mean, number one, I feel like the first detail that came out where people were like, what was that they were using a video game controller to operate it, which my gamer friends have told me it's like also not even a good controller. Like it's kind of known as like... Yeah,
1: I heard that they use that kind of shit a lot. But then I also heard the discourse in response to that, which is like, no, we don't. So it's one of those things where I can't even... Yeah, the discourse has really overwhelmed. I have no
2: idea. I have no idea if that's normal or not. Again, I feel like you hinted at it, but it's like, this week has been a long journey of me learning a lot about submarines, submersibles, the under the sea world. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing that there's like this very like dark, like the fact that they were going to visit the Titanic, Mm -hmm. which like the Titanic sunk in part, and so many people died on the Titanic in part because of a lot of preventable decisions Mm -hmm. that were made as far as like they were going extra fast because they wanted to get there faster than anyone had ever gotten there. The thing about the lifeboat, there not being enough lifeboats because it would have crowded the decks.
1: Which I know because I've seen Titanic three times, of course.
2: A mil- a- yeah, exactly. I mean, no one's seen Titanic more than Amanda. <laughs>
3: no, Amanda's going to go on MSNBC as the expert. <gasps> and her and
1: her, her credit is seen Titanic. <laughs> I was listening to Lost Cult, their most recent episode, and they made they made a reference to how even prominent heterosexuals enjoy Titanic. And I know I wasn't who they were referring to, but I would love to just, if I, I'm going to change my Twitter bio, I would love to just be known as a prominent heterosexual. I heterosexual. feel like you. Are all of us good for us, but yeah, those parallels are are crazy.
2: Yeah, that's the thing that strikes me the most about it because there's like the video game controller element, but also I think we're gonna get into this. But like, there were a lot of warnings about the safety level of this particular vessel, the way that it was put together, just the level of safety of going down that far. At all is kind of questionable, I found. So that's the kind of like dark. I don't want to say like irony because, again, like there are five people who probably are not with us anymore. But there is a dark Mm -hmm. connection there that has kind of driven my fascination. Yeah,
1: like humans not being able to help themselves once a hundred years later.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think that the things that stuck out to me are like, first of all, just. Fucking imagining being in this dark. It makes like, me fucking sick. Just, like, oh. it, it makes me so anxious to think of like how they're sitting, how they're arranged, and all that, and like just experiencing that. That just gives me like nightmares. I think that one of them being 19 it makes me well, you know, really, really sad. sad. I think, but then I'm also like that they each spent $250,000, which in this time of like, Home ownership <laughs> not, not being a possibility for so many people, like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars can really change someone's life, and they're just willing to spend it uh, on something as frivolous and not necessary because they they weren't even able. Like even if they did like go down and see the Titanic, they they're still watching it through a screen. They're not even watching it like through the windows because the, of how the submersible is right. built. So that was like a real shocker to me. And then also like what what ends up happening all the time is that rich people like will spend their own money on frivolous things like this, but then using taxpayer resources like the Coast Guard to have to yeah. do this rescue mission and retrieve them. And a point that I heard somebody make on like Instagram or something was just that it's so crazy, you know, how Elon Musk and and um, Jeff Bezos and Martin, they spend all this money. And like, again, it's like this invincibility of like being rich and doing the most daring things. But God forbid they fucking pay taxes to, you know, they don't want get, to get taxed to like, pay for roads or the Coast Guard or anything like that is out of this world. Like that is how dare you? You hate businesses and you hate entrepreneurs and you hate wealth if you want that. But these guys are totally cool with paying $250,000 for this dumb shit. So, uh, you know, it's just a lot of things stick out.
1: Nightmare fuel. I mean, for me, definitely my top, top, top fear, literal nightmare fuel is being stuck in the deep ocean or in space. Mm. And people are doing that. People are, I think that's what's, and I think that like, I think you can tell by now that like we're not participating in the intense mockery of five people that very likely have already died a very gruesome death, but there is a lot to discuss here. Like Millie said about like how cavalierly people were willing to undertake this when like, there were no regulation. there's no regulations, I believe, to which this little submersible is, it's just a guy. Like, I know he has skills, I know he's an engineer, but he's still just a guy that was like, I can take you down here into the <laughs> deepest depths of the ocean, and just, it's, it's interesting, I, I've seen some kind of discourse that extreme wealth and privilege just really, like, inoculates you from the reality of the world and just it never maybe occurred to some of them that they were in for something really dangerous and and tragic. And it's just so bizarre to me how cavalierly people are like, oh yeah, this smart rich guy says I can go to space. And people have successfully gone to space. I'm not comparing this little submersible to whatever SpaceX is or whatever just Bezos is doing. I would never do it. But it is. um, that's what I've been thinking about a lot is just like people there are like – Everest is littered with bodies – of mm-hmm. probably it's maybe mostly sherpas but also probably of like rich guys getting their rocks off.
2: Yeah. Well, it's very like there is actually an apt comparison to space in that like less people th- fewer people have gone that far down into the ocean than have actually gone to space, mm. which is crazy <laughs> to think about. Less than 2% of our ocean is explored especially I hate that. at that level. And the thing with going to space and rich guys going to space is I do feel like there are regulations, tests, all these things that have to happen before they are able to shoot their yeah. rocket into the sky. Mm-hmm. But the this submersible it seems like it seems like they were kind of able to make like a D- DIY submersible and go down there which is genuinely not it it is on the level of making a, a DIY spaceship and shooting yourself into the sky. Like it is that, it is that dangerous. And I do feel like, especially when you talk about the nineteen year old whose dad probably yeah. bought them tickets to go down there, I just wonder what level of understanding those two people in particular had about the DIY nature of this. I mean, one of the people on it is the mm-hmm. CEO of this company who actually pushed against safety regulations for his submersibles. So there's like a little bit of, okay, yeah. well, he was aware. He at least was aware mm-hmm. of what was going into this. The One of the people is like a French diver and Titanic expert who, I mean, it's sad for anyone to implode on a submersible under the sea, but... I just imagine that he at least in terms of informed consent, understanding yeah. of the danger. This other British billionaire, I mean, I keep seeing him build as an explorer. <laughs> I don't know what that means in this year 2023. Exactly. <laughs> Honestly. But I just wonder as with regard specifically to the father-son duo and definitely this 19-year-old kid. Like What To what level did they understand that this submersible thing was not Mm -hmm. up to... There's no no FAA, right. So, number one, did they know that there was no code? I mean, again, before I spent $250,000 to get into a submersible, I would kind of Google these things. But either way, did they know that there's no code? And did they know that if there was a code, this submersible would not be meeting any kind of code like that is what makes me really sad mm-hmm. for them mm-hmm. i'm just
3: like you know my little hippy dippy bleeding heart is like god i wish these fucking guys got the same rush that they got like from exploring deep space as to like rebuilding an orphanage or like ending hunger you know. in an entire city right
1: or like make sure there's access they've to never water. felt the rush of like barely paying your rent on time and like yeah. I think that's why I don't have a part, like Elise said, like people, the people that were doing this more as a tourism activity and maybe didn't understand, like you might, honestly, you might just assume that if anybody is going to go several miles down into the ocean, you know, they've passed all, they've passed all of the tests. T- and
2: there, there are, are no, no tests. tests. There are no tests. <laughs> <laughs> to me, <laughs> I feel less the
1: others. I no feel tests. obviously terrible for them, but they, they they did this knowing the risks and knowing that their families might not see them ever again and that was a choice that that they made and that's really and i think it's just so hard for all of us watching this to understand why they felt that that was a good choice <laughs> like <laughs> and then as you all said the the parallels to the titanic are are quite eerie i mean this french diver whose whole life has been you know about getting down to the titanic um, I guess like Stockton Rush, like his wife is descended from like a pretty prominent Titanic survivor. There's just Jesus like Christ. it's just oh, I did Christ. not expect Titanic to like loom this large <laughs> this year. James Cameron will say. let it.
2: We need to let that ship rest. We've got the movies. We've got a gazillion videos of that thing. We need to let that ship go. Jack and Rose aren't real people. Yeah they're made up
3: james cameron is writing a reboot as we speak
1: also i think what else i was was on my mind was mike and i were listening to this podcast when we were on our honeymoon called what went wrong and it's about movies have you guys heard of this and they talk about like what went wrong while movies were filming have you guys ever heard about what it was like to film the titanic
3: it was i know they filmed a lot of it in mexico so a lot of the extras are actually Mexican.
1: oh really It's bananas. (laughs) They blew a hole in the ground and basically filmed the whole movie in a pool, which they were all apparently pissing in the whole time and constantly getting kidney infections. Kate Winslet almost drowned twice. Like for some of the scenes, they literally weighed her down. Another scene, she like got her coat stuck on something, and then like there was there was a catering worker or something, or they don't know who did it, but an aggrieved employee spiked.
2: This is the one thing I do uh, know about spiked
1: their chowder. (laughs) With PCP and the entire cast and the entire crew, at least, including James Cameron, had to go to the hospital and they were all like causing wreaking havoc on the hospital because they were all high on PCP. So many gruesome things happened during the filming of this. This whole entire narrative is cursed. Please let her rest.
2: Yeah, I really do encourage people to Google the Titanic PCP <laughs> chowder because it is really crazy and someone dosed the crafty <laughs> chowder with PCP. Somebody stabbed James and Cameron in the face and no one, with a pen. It's, n- no one knows who did it to this day I think that, who put PCP yeah, in podcast the chowder. This says that
1: James Cameron thinks he knows who did it, but he didn't want to like Get them in, in in that much trouble. Put them out there. But all of this, all of this is doomed. I'm sure we will all obsessively scrolling our TikToks for more submersible content. Do you guys think that this will give people pause about undertaking extreme outdoor activities? Like, do you think this will be sobering? Or do you think it just seems so aberrant, so obviously a flawed endeavor that it's not going to be an existential question about whether billionaires need to use all their excess wealth to like. I saw a woman described on TikTok as like the genre is men going places where it's too cold for them.
2: Yeah. I mean, I do think that like this is just a thing that is not accessible to <laughs> most of us to even really do. But I do feel like if there is an outcome as a result of it, it might be some safety Please. regulations going into effect about Stuff that goes under the sea because, again, it is as dangerous as going up into space. You don't need a rocket. Mm -hmm, So, I guess it's like more accessible to get to the deep sea in a certain way, but it is genuinely that dangerous. And you need that level of like technological advancements and fail safes and all of that stuff before getting into a submarine. So, maybe. As a result of this mm-hmm. there will be more regulation around like <laughs> who can send a sub down with people in right, it right as a commercial in it enterprise yeah yeah
1: Hey everyone, it's Amanda, popping in because after we finished our recording, the Coast Guard did confirm that that debris field we were talking about, discovered by the Titanic, did come from the Ocean Gate Titan submersible, which experienced a catastrophic event, and it is believed that all five people aboard did perish. For the main news, we've got a Supreme Court heavy main news segment today. But first, let's discuss the anniversary of the Dobbs decision. But do not worry, Samuel Alito, we will come back to you. Also, author of the Dobbs decision, so tying all of this together. We're talking on mm-hmm. Thursday. And Saturday will mark one year since the Supreme Court issued the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v.ersus Wade and immediately gave states the opportunity to ban abortion. It's been one year since that, but we did know about a month earlier than that that they were going to do this. But it's been a year since this very chaotic sort of legislative um, ping pong began. Bans in dozens of states are still moving through the courts and changing in status, sometimes on a daily basis. I feel like I was really good at keeping up with everything for like a couple of weeks. And then awesome. you're like, fuck, there's 50 states. It's so out of control. I've said it before, like you should subscribe to abortion every day which is a newsletter by Jessica Valenti. And she just goes into so, so much detail. And she just, we're covering the big legislative things, Elise's, in the newsletter. And that one is just a little more, like she's just getting into daily, daily updates of everything going on with abortion. I, I don't know how she does it. So it's been today, 25 million women, 25 million women live in states with abortion bans or tighter restrictions than they did a year ago. Twenty-five states in total have enacted bans of any kind, and 14 have banned abortion in most cases at any point in pregnancy. Bans are in effect or temporarily blocked in pretty much all of the Southeast. We have no idea how many women have nearly died while waiting to receive life-saving care to end a doomed pregnancy. Many of them have spoken out. I mean, Elise, you used to say something that I thought about a lot, which is like, we will know the name of the first kind of person who who dies as a result of this. And I can't help but think that has happened privately or just somebody whose family did not want to make, was not up for, you know, using that, you know, coming forward with that story, but just given, you know, maternal mortality, like I, I I am sure that it has happened as a result of these bans.
2: Well, and it's also like there has been extreme medical damage done to people. You're about to speak to the woman from Texas who as a result of not being able to get care now can't get pregnant again because like it'll be much she, harder you know her fertil yeah her fertility has been seriously impacted because you know she was not able to get the care that she needed so like I am sure that people people have been harmed immeasurably already by this
3: yeah I am. Um a podcast that I really enjoy uh, holding court with Ebony K Williams. I'm like a huge fan. And she talks about pop culture and things in like a legal way. And last week, literally she discussed the case of Celeste Burgess, an 18 year old teen from Nebraska, who's facing up to two years in prison for taking abortion pills mm-hmm. and like managing a self, you know, and, yeah. and the, and her mother faces eight years for helping her and the, so much of this case is so fucked up. The girl, now she's 18. At the time, she was 17. Um, and her and her mother were discussing this on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I think in the year, as we're talking about the yeah. anniversaries, and like, of course, Celeste didn't die, but like the details of this case are very harrowing. I really encourage you to like look deeper into this. But um, a lot of things from that case really like has put a bow on this year because specifically for that case, a major part of evidence that they used were Facebook, private Facebook messages between Celeste and her mother, Jessica, who's 41 and her, Mm -hmm. you know, her daughter's 17. And like just the situation of her, there's again, I guess like in this past year, as we're talking about, like, what have we learned and all that stuff? Like for me, personally, it's like, really fucking be careful about social media. Mm-hmm. I think before we've had like cursory talks about the impact of social media and the harm and yeah. stuff. But like yeah. seeing that they're actually using private fucking messages in cases to like, convey between women, a mother and daughter, between a mother and daughter about a self managed abortion, you know, when she's 17, like, you can't understand why she would, like, that was just something that really again we're, we're talking about like who's going to be the first person to die but that yeah that one was really like this girl's going to go to jail for two years because she didn't want to have a baby at 17 and her mother's facing eight years because she wanted to help her daughter in a tough situation and these are the casualties of this really impractical frankly stupid law
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So. yeah those are exactly. I mean, right. We're hearing a lot about people that he- whose health has been impacted, but the criminalization of abortion has is also going to fundamentally change the course of people's lives and it and it already has. I mean, do you guys ever feel like a lot of times I just sort of have to kind of like remind myself like, oh my God, this happened like I think beca- because we're in new york i we we obviously keep up with the news, but I personally don't know anyone who's had to travel to access care um. Even though I know that is something that is happening constantly and it's, do you guys feel like the political system has sort of like, do you sort of relate when I, I feel like, how are we not all like freaking out about this all of the time, but it's like, we also can't, we yeah. can only do so much.
2: Yeah, it's, it's really, it, it is one of those things where I think in New York, when you are, or in your, when you're in a state that has protected access you can feel a little bit insulated Mm -hmm. from it but something that is really important for us to remember is that like these people that did this and pushed for this they their goal their end goal was not just the overturning of Roe. that was their that was their first goal their end goal is a national abortion ban so like you know we're only as protected Mm -hmm. as who's running our national government Mm -hmm. and shit, you know, like we've got an election year coming up. Like if Republicans got into power, they would pass. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And Ron DeSantis or Trump would sign it. So something that we have to remember, and it is scary. Like I have, uh, I have a couple of different family members in states that have really insane abortion bans right now, really strict ones. And one of those family members what has been trying to get pregnant, was pregnant, had a miscarriage. And luckily, like, I mean, luckily, it was obviously like a horrible thing, but luckily, like that miscarriage proceeded normally. So she was able to just you know, move forward. But there was a period of time where we were all really scared that like, if this goes poorly in the state that she's in, things can turn really, it turned this like thing that was already horrible for them into an even greater emergency because it's like, if this thing stop doesn't proceed normally, again, we're about to speak with this woman in Texas. If something starts going wrong, doctors can't intercede on your behalf in the state that she's in because of how strict the abortion ban that she is living under is. And so it took this thing that would have been, again, like a private family tragedy and added this level of like real fear on top of it that was that made it even worse for them.
3: And I think even though we're, if you live in a protected state, you are quote unquote insulated from like, maybe the idea that if something happens, you can't get an abortion. But these states, these 25 states, like all these women are traveling to other things and it has mm-hmm. actually made yeah, that's so an such impact important. on demands yeah. of these clinics that were already stretched thin, that already didn't have enough funding. It's making it more difficult and it's it's really affecting the long-term viability of like where people live. And I think it, it, it has ripple effects and other things. And just like we're a strong, like if we have a Republican president that wants to do a national abortion ban, that's a reality, but it's also a reality of like, we kind of have to keep putting our foot on the necks of these Democrats because there are plenty of plenty of Democrats who either are pro-life, do not feel strongly about it. Won't even say abortion. Like that's kind of our problem too, is like really putting this issue in the forefront. Because personally, we, I, we have discussed on this podcast about how Joe Biden barely says abortion, about how his fucking speech was two weeks too late. About, you know, Kathy Holcho, our New York governor, so, you know, is elevating Republican and pro life legislators and all of that. And we, there's plenty of people throughout the country, you know, Democrats that are pro you know, anti-abortion. So it's not necessarily that, you know, mm-hmm. it's like all good or all, you yeah. know, it's like.
1: Remember that voicemail we had from the provider who was like, the Democrats in Rhode Island are using weird language about this. Yes. And that was definitely yeah. sobering because I think that's how all of this happened. Just this like reluctance to really engage with what is something that like is not really. Pleasant for anyone to think about or talk about, but is simply a fact of life.
4: A gifting moment is always just around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now.
1: Next up in main news, we have uh, another Supreme Court justice is giving judicial BJs to conservative billionaires in order to get on private jets. I have really been watching a lot of Vanderpump. Um, so the idea of BJs in exchange for private jet access is top of mind. All right. This time it is Samuel <laughs> Alito. Ugh, this one. So good. In 2008, Alito let hedge fund billionaire Paul Singer fly him to a luxury fishing trip in Alaska. The access was secured by Leonard Leo, who was the leader of the Federalist Society, one of the most terrifying men in America. He also attended this trip. And he was basically like, Leonard asked Paul Singer, he was like, hey, me and Justice Alito, we need a ride. We need a ride to the Alaska thing. And you're taking your private jet. Can we come? And Singer was like, of course. The flight was worth $100,000, but Alito did not report the 2008 fishing trip on his annual financial disclosures. Ethics law experts say this would have been a violation. In the years that followed this gift and trip, the hedge fund singers, the guy with the private jet, came before the court at least 10 times. Apparently this hedge fund, their whole thing is to just do things where they know they're going to have to be involved with a lot of litigation. Oh, for but for to them yeah, exactly. But to them, that's that's their business model. But this included a case where they bought up a bunch of Argentinian debt. And ultimately, like they kept asking the Supreme Court to get involved. The Supreme Court kept saying no until a couple of years after this fishing trip, mm-hmm. when Argentina was ultimately ordered to pay Singer's hedge fund $2.4 billion and a seven to one decision uh, where Alito was also in the majority. But again, this was after the court had declined to take it up. And even though that opinion was seven to one, it only takes four justices to agree to take something up for them to consider it. So, you know, Alito would have only had to convince a few people that, you know, his friend's case was worth the attention. Paul Singer, the guy with the jet, has contributed more than eighty million dollars to Republican political groups, including those that file friend of the court briefs and Supreme Court cases. And those can really have an impact on the justices. Singer and Alito did not just go on this trip together. Like they're clearly friends. They are clearly very friendly. They introduce each other at prominent events. And the note that they're friends is important because like, if you are very close friends, then you should be recusing yourself anyway. And if you're not close friends, which is kind of like what, Alito, I think, alludes to it in his defense. Then why are you on this guy's private jet anyway? Mm-hmm. You know what? What you can't you can't have it both ways. Also notable here is that Alito's thousand dollar a night stay at the fishing laws was also bankrolled by a separate conservative donor. So I feel like he's just like an influencer who wants to take a trip and like is like, who can I? Which hotels can I get to pay for this? <laughs> which which airline can I do spawn from? I mean, as I was reading this, I was like, if you just fucking love luxury vacations, it seems like the Supreme Court is your best occupation.
3: Yeah, but again, these are all the wackest places. <laughs> like, go to Capri. I don't know. What the, ice fishing? What the fuck is wrong with these people? Michigan yachts? Like, come on. Get go better. Their taste exotic. is the problem.
1: It is not the corruption. It is the uh, terrible, well, terrible taste in tourism. The bottom of the ocean, Alaska. I mean, Alaska is beautiful, but come God on damn if go to a take fucking a private jet
3: Antarctica anywhere. or some cool shit I'm just saying too I mean they probably can't go to Antarctica because they're probably fucking banned from Argentina because they're fucking scamming those people but that's besides the point I just also want to point out that a lot of girls that do OnlyFans, Instagram models that get flewed out get a lot of hate and slut shaming but look at these Supreme Court justices uh-huh. getting flewed out on private jets, getting fucking taking trips, having man bankroll their shit. This is whore behavior. And It is and, the Lala you, Kent University exactly. of private jet access. Yes. I mean, come exactly. on. People say shit about Lala and all these other Instagram. Sam Alito. And guess what? And Clarence Thomas. And Scalia, a, I should have mentioned. Scalia. Scalia was also invited on a bunch of these trips. But you know, Lala Kent will scam her way or whatever. On a jet, that's not affecting if a girl in Nebraska can get an abortion or not. (laughs) Or an entire nation's economic viability. Economic thing. Uh, uh, The dollar right now in Argentina today in 2023. Go look up on TikTok what the exchange rate is for a dollar in Argentina. It's fucking crazy. And how it varies from place to place. It's the economic situation in Argentina is very not good right now. And I'm 100% sure it has to do with this. I'm also like, again, this is an unelected board that Republicans constantly scam their way in and we look into these things, but it's like, what are we going to do, Democrats? Like, God forbid we fucking pack the courts with one or two people who aren't fucking taking private ice fishing trips to the most whack-ass places. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) I like Alaska Daily. I thought it was a great show. I'm sad it was canceled.
1: But I know we already um, lost Boston. We can't lose all of Alaska. <laughs> no,
3: uh, Alaska, you know, I got love for you. But if I'm gonna get a hundred thousand dollar trip, yep. you know, am I gonna go to fucking Alaska to go ice fishing? Maybe not. That's just me. That's just Millie Tamara's. I'm but you know,
2: but I guess, I guess that like kind of the big theme of today is that maybe we just don't have the priorities. The vacationing priorities of these truly Mm -hmm. rich people. Because again, if I have $250,000, I'm probably going to spend that That on a passport. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm leaving the country. I'm
2: going to be, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to be, I'm going to be in super yacht territory. But not where Gladys is. Something. Far from the Orcas. No, no, no. exactly. I'm gonna want to swim down a slide or get
3: in a water. I've seen below deck. Absolutely. Exactly. You want to get on a jet ski? You want to swim in clear, warm oceans? Right. Not off the coast of Boston.
1: Sorry, I want Boston a beach again. picnic. I want a full ass beach picnic in the wind, yes. and I want to watch them run. Yeah. <laughs> no. Ugh.
2: I do want to go to Alaska. I fuck. I would fuck with Alaska. But again, if I'm getting my vacation paid for. By a billionaire? Would you go
1: to Alaska?
3: Is Alaska is
2: Alaska well, it's just the right like, really, I don't even
1: need to read the following sentence when you tell me that a bunch of white guys and Clarence Thomas went to Alaska for a fishing trip. I know they're all Republicans. I I, if, yeah. I know that they all are, and, yep. God, and God help the one individual who probably isn't. The the there this gets funnier because despite. So Samuel Alito and his people told ProPublica, we have no comments. We have no comment. Usually, like, you don't send the article to them. You just say, like, here are the claims that we've verified. Do you have any response? Alito said, no, I have no response. But then he tried to scoop ProPublica, and he published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal before ProPublica even published their piece, so before he can even read it. But he titled it, ProPublica Misleads Its Readers.
3: Fuck Wall Street Journal for even publishing Always.
1: Alito said that he simply took the seat on the private jet because Mm -hmm. he was invited and it, quote, would have otherwise been vacant. Oh, God forbid. There there was no need for justices to disclose, quote, accommodations and transportation for social events. Motherfucker talks like he's like hopping in (laughs) and hopping in an Uber XL.
2: Yeah. Right. Right, that like he just happened to be passing by, and they were like, "Oh, we have, we actually have a room on our jet if you want to get in, and then we'll kind of split it after whatever." I mean, just imagine if like Ruth Bader Ginsburg had gotten on like George Soros's plane. Stop it! (laughs) You know what I mean? Like these, they would need around the clock protection. the The people who are trying to act like this is fine, if a liberal justice did this. They would be absolutely losing their minds. And again, like Leonard Leo is as much of a like rich activist person as a George Soros. Yeah, he got a 1. $1. $1.6 billion
1: dollar donation just to keep doing him. Yeah. Which is this. And which is this.
2: The Federalist Society, which like their explicit goal is to try to get conservatives on the yeah. court. So literally
1: any conservative. Like,
2: yeah, exactly. I mean, truly, anyone you can be a frat bro with, <laughs> as long as you have some credit card debt pass, to pay off. They'll yeah, get yeah. You. who paid
3: his credit card debt? Come on, War ProPublica. 20%? I'm sure that's next. Come on, ProPublica.
2: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just like it's just laughable to think like if Sonia Sotomayor, we found out that she had gotten on again like a George Soros funded trip to wherever. She could have put a people...
1: She'd go somewhere fun. Yeah. She'd go somewhere fun.
2: Yeah. She would probably go somewhere. Oh, she, she's probably, I'm saying, I, I imagine she's going to a beach. Either way, these people would be like, she has to, they would be trying to impeach her. Yeah.
1: Oh, God. She would be impeached. Try to impeach absolutely. Her. Absolutely.
2: Like, we're not even trying. I know that the, the standard to impeach a Supreme Court justice is the same as a president. So the chances of that happening in our current makeup of the Senate is... It's not going to happen, but Republicans would mm-hmm. put it forward. A f- fucking Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert are fighting on the House floor right now over who gets to put forward an impeachment motion Aren't for Joe Biden. They so, like,
3: Adam Schiff, like, as we speak. They, they did censure him.
2: him. They did. Was that last week? Yeah.
3: No, yesterday. They did it yesterday. Oh, my God. And, like, everyone's yelling shame doing? and shit, you know? Let me
2: tell you. Yeah. And again, you focused like, on the sub. So there's. I know, but this story came out that Marjorie Taylor Greene called Lauren Boebert a little bitch. Sign up for the Betcha Sub newsletter. We put it in there. But the thing they were fighting over when Marjorie Taylor Greene called her a little bitch is that they both <laughs> is that they're both they they both put forward motions to impeach joe biden and then lauren bobert did some kind of like technical thing that makes it so her one is going to get voted on first and marjorie was like you copied my impeachment motion and i i voted for you and i defended you and you've been nothing but a little bitch to me
3: <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> which Fats. is really
2: funny and then also people comments they co- she got called to confirm whether or not she called lauren bobert a little bitch and she said Yes, and she has been nothing but a nasty <laughs> little bitch to me.
1: What? I love this. I don't even care if this is the most <laughs> I, I anti-feminine. I don't care if we're not supposed to about women fighting. I love no. this so much. Who Let the them fuck fight. Says
2: that? No, they can destroy Obsessed. each other. I, they can take each other down hundred percent. But my both point is both in the is, middle of
1: fraught divorces.
2: Oh my god. I know. But my point is like Republicans will stunt impeach Joe Biden or whatever right. for nothing, but we can't get like, like everything that I hear about this is like, well, the Senate judiciary is going to do an inquiry about maybe if we should kind no, of have so some have rules. But it's up to John Jim. Roberts
1: is, if he wants to show up. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it's just like, this is completely ridiculous. The court, a court that overturned a right that has been in place for 50 years is demonstrably corrupt. And we're just sitting there going, oh, man, it's unfortunate. It's really too bad. They really should recuse them. Yeah, <laughs> and like
3: God forbid, but like again, God forbid we do anything, s- even slightly outside the norm, or think a little bit outside the box as Democrats. I'm saying, right, um, to make it even a little bit more equal. God forbid we add another justice. Right, Republicans forbid- are fu-
1: congressional Republicans are fucking nuts, but they're creative.
3: Yeah, and like they don't give a shit. They're not following the rules and we're really following the rules so
2: yeah because it's like the reason that Joe Biden and them don't want to try to pack the court which FDR did absolutely try to do he wasn't successful but like it it's not it's been tried before the reason that none of them want to even approach that is cuz they're like well it would seem unethical i'm like this man <laughs> is on ice a lunch. billionaire conservatives ice <laughs> fishing trip fucking Clarence Thomas Harlan Crow owns his house. house and
3: paid for his fucking nephew's
2: house tuition yes and they're going on these vacations it's I mean it's absolutely ridiculous and also side note not to plug another podcast but if anyone is if slate does their slow burn podcast this most recent season they just finished it it's all about the life of Clarence Thomas and like his whole his whole arc and it was one of the most interesting things i've ever heard in my life and at the end he talks to th- the guy is constant he's like interviewing his mom his mom seems lovely mm. Clarence but Thomas's mom it is mom? Just very interesting yes what? Clarence Thomas's mom seems like the sweetest Whoa. old lady in the world miss leola she genuinely seems so cute the guy who's like doing the whole podcast at the end they have like a clip of him showing her a video of his baby and she's like oh look at your baby she's like so cute but the kind of (laughs) final point is that he's like Clarence Thomas's family like built this house they kept it through like really hard times in the south they had this kind of ethos of like you know we're a black family and we're gonna build this up and then now the house is owned by this fucking billionaire conservative guy. Mm-hmm. Like, like she still lives in it, but this man owns her house. That is wild.
1: That is absolutely wild. Yeah, like you said, we're just sort of now, this comes on the heels of the Clarence Thomas revelations, which, you know, nothing has really been done about, so you don't really expect much to come from this. And of course, Samuel Alito is like, I don't give a shit, I'm just going to publish my op-ed in the Wall Street Journal so I can get my uh, account of the record. But some other just completely um out of touch references is that he referred to the again this fishing lodge cost a thousand dollars a night he referred to it as comfortable but rustic he, <laughs> <laughs> those are my favorite the seat would otherwise be free i didn't know i had to talk about transportation to social events it was rustic it's all just like i mean it wasn't that nice people. it wasn't that nice exactly none of this is, is it's all it's all beside at the point
3: could i ask a question really quickly to Always. you and Elise, would you rather go on a Michigan yacht with Harlan Crow or go to this Alaskan ice fishing $1,000 a night trip?
1: I'm going to go on the boat.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm going not on going the boat that. because I actually, I went to the lake in Wisconsin last year. And it's it's real just nice. one day. I can do and one quiet. day, but
1: I couldn't fish with these people. But I don't
2: enjoy mm-hmm. fishing. Yeah. Like, I don't need to be out and it's cold and I'm on ice and I'm fishing. Again, how we started the show is
1: why are men, why do rich men go to places that are too cold for them to do things that you can buy a salmon? What about you, Millie? Where are you going? No,
3: I'm going to Michigan. I'm going to (laughs) Michigan Yacht. I'm just saying. I was just curious because this seems like it's super expensive. And it ain't even nice. So I'm just
1: like, who would do Yeah, think? yeah. And you can't liquidate it. And yeah. also my favorite part of this is this is also what Clarence Thomas says is they're all like, We never discussed their cases, their business before the court. We would never discuss that. Cause so I'm always like, What the fuck were you talking about? That's like say, like, like when the That's three of right. us get together outside of the podcast, like it's like as we don't we don't talk about it we don't talk about anything about politics the podcast like the, then this gentleman is not your friend if you're yeah. not talking about it your also job it doesn't
2: fucking it doesn't fucking matter you guys exactly hung out, it doesn't matter you went on a free trip with this guy and then when you're sitting in front of the court and you go hey that's the hedge fund that that guy i went on the fishing trip with who let me go on his pri- uh, private jet for free and we stayed in that cute rustic cabin it Oopsies. wasn't nice but it was it was <laughs> nice enough uh, you remember him and you go, oh, like it's it doesn't matter if they specifically discussed the case. It's that he received a bunch of free stuff from this guy. Any person who sees that guy again is going to be like, oh, hey, that's the guy that gave me all the free stuff. I used
3: to, When I used to live in South Florida, when I was in high school, I had a friend who worked, lived at or worked at Wendy's. And I would I would order like one sandwich and leave with two bags full of shit like fries and nuggets. I owe that motherfucker my life Mm -hmm. for two bags of free. Are you telling me someone that's giving you an one hundred thousand dollar trip?
1: You don't owe them shit. Mm -hmm. Get out of here. Yeah. And he's giving you flattering introductions and all the dumb Republican talks you do.
4: and of course free shipping on your first box just go to homeshef.com feverdream dream that's homeshef.com fever dream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life you heard that right homeshef.com fever dream must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert
1: All right, we have reached we have reached our final segment, which is really, I think, the thematic anchor of today's show overall. <laughs> our men. Okay. We could really no. take this in so many directions today. So I'm just gonna pose a couple and then, you know, we're shorter on time. So I think you can just give me your verdicts by the end. Where could we go today? We could just dis- could discuss how Robert F. Kennedy appeared on Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson's podcast in the space of just a few days. That's just sound that's a hate crime itself. And about how YouTube yeah. had to remove video of the Peterson-Kennedy interview because it featured such egregious vaccine disinformation. Yeah, in the year 2023, people, uh, nobody who had a vaccine, we're all here. We're all fine. Well, how are they still making this argument?
3: But also, like, I don't you're know. not convincing anyone either. Like, no people who didn't get it aren't going to get it. It's,
1: just... it's over. Or the three-hour conversation between Robert F. Kennedy and Joe Rogan. Which Vice described as, quote, an orgy of unchecked vaccine information, some conspiracy mongering about 5G technology and Wi-Fi, and of course, Rogan once again praising ivermectin. Rogan keeps saying that ivermectin healed him because he took it, but he also got all of the -the top-of-the-line treatments that were available. Or for our men, okay, we could talk about how Joe Rogan's interview with Robert Kennedy led to a vaccine scientist being stalked and harassed outside his home. After the podcast host, who made $200 million for this fucking podcast, demanded he debate the anti-vaxxer presidential candidate. Or in keeping with hapless displays of male aggression, we could discuss Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg baiting each other into a cage fight. So Instagram is going to launch a text-based app as a competitor to Twitter, and Musk got in the replies of some tweets about this, which led to him stating that he'd be up for a cage match with his fellow billionaire with the godplum plaques, Mark Zuckerberg, who owns Facebook, which owns Instagram, which is going to launch this new app. To which Zuckerberg responded on Instagram, "Send me the location," presuming to engage with Elon Musk's invitation to have a cage fight. I don't know. I don't know where to start. I don't know where to. E- I think we're going to end at the same place. Though, are men okay? Yeah, <laughs> the really exasperation wow. on these women's faces
2: right now. Yeah. <laughs> so many. It's fucking so hope Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk fight. They're just slapping and crying. Just like ah. I just. <laughs>
3: There's- Why can't they fight to make a good app that's not going to have <laughs> fucking bad ads? Why well, don't about- they get
1: competitive about that? The literal yeah. thing that they do.
3: Yeah. Like now everyone, everyone with a blue check mark on Twitter is the stupidest person I've ever interacted with. I know. It's like anyone who pays for it and they're saying the dumbest things. And that's what I see constantly. And I keep forgetting that it's like, oh, this doesn't mean anything
1: mm-hmm. anymore
3: because any idiot can have it and they Well just- that's why
1: Instagram's like it's our turn.
2: And now we're going to trick turn. you into
1: thinking Instagram is Twitter.
2: Oh my gosh. Well Elon Musk also this week was like sis is a oh, slur. Oh god, thank and you. And on Twitter the word sis is considered a slur and I'm just like you are I th- such. It's so funny because he started his whole takeover where he was like, "Jokes are now legal on Twitter. This is a slur. You can't say it." I'm like, "You're such a fucking loser." And then like he's tweeting back and forth with J.K. Rowling. I'm like, "What? What fresh?" Well, I think is this- he is
1: just doing that <laughs> to get users to Twitter because they're like, "Oh, I want to." Like he's just he's yeah. just doing that for for page views. But the men this week are really in crisis. They really are not doing well. They're making some terrible, terrible decisions. So don't forget to rate this podcast five stars because we're women.
3: Yeah. I just, again, you know, they might, men that might make it to another generation if they're all taking horse paste.
1: That taking cost, horse paste. Horse going paste to the bottom of the fucking
3: ocean. In the space. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> whoa. Like, oh, whoa. You, like, they really don't love themselves. Like, if you think that white men are getting... Have some re- self-respect. Again, these all men subscribe to replacement theory. Elon Musk is out here trying to have 80 kids to replace whatever. And all these people, and they say all this shit about...
2: To replace all the ones he already has that exactly. won't talk to him.
3: And, um, <laughs> you know, they, again, these men are constantly bemoaning the position that white men have in society. Yet they engage in the most dangerous shit in just... Fucking horse paste. Like, they're not doing anything for their case. I'm sorry.
1: No, th- these, yeah, yeah, these are going to be the guys. There's like a subset of guys who are going to be even more um, attracted to going down to the bottom of the ocean in a minivan uh, after this because they're going to think it's even more hardcore. All right, stick around. We're going to take a break from these men. (laughs) Stick around for my interview with Amanda Zaraski. She is part of a lawsuit with more than a dozen women suing the state of Texas after they experienced life-threatening consequences of its abortion laws.
0: When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going. But there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet.
1: So before we get into my interview with Amanda Zarowski, I wanna play a clip of her describing her experience in her own words so that you kind of have the context for the rest of the conversation. This clip and our interview does include references to miscarriage and pregnancy loss. If that's something that's really challenging for you to hear, uh, maybe skip this one.
5: I wanted to address my senators, Cruz and Cornyn, who uh, neither of whom regrettably are in the room right now, but I would like for them to know that what happened to me, I think, most people in this room would agree was horrific. But it's a direct result of the policies that they support. I nearly died on their watch. And furthermore, as a result of what happened to me, I may have been robbed of the opportunity to have children in the future. And it's because of the policies that they support. What happened to me was horrible, but I am one of many. And quite frankly, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I have a husband that could take me to the hospital. I don't have other children that I had to worry about finding health care for. I have a job that was understanding that allowed me to grieve for three days as I waited to almost die. What about all of the women that don't have those same opportunities, that don't have access to health care, that don't have health insurance, that don't have a partner? What about them?
1: I am back as promised with Amanda Zarowski, whose voice you just heard speaking before the Senate earlier this year. Thank you so much for joining us today. How you doing? I'm good.
5: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: We're super excited. As I mentioned over email and text, your your not just your story, but your like absolute like endless strength in telling it has really resonated with our audience. And it's an overused word, but you're definitely a badass.
5: <laughs> well, I never get tired of hearing it. Um, that is, that's very, very kind and generous of, of you to say. So, thank you. I and totally
1: that. off topic, but whenever I watch you on TV, I'm like, I wonder who would win in an arm wrestling contest, Amanda or Michelle Obama? <laughs> okay, you look so, so strong.
5: Okay, that is hilarious because people often comment on my arms um, and ask like what my workout is, and it's funny because I think a lot of it is just genetic. Truly, because. Really? I tell people like they're purely ornamental. Like they are not strong at all. I recognize, really? yes, I recognize that they're toned, but they cannot lift anything. Like it is hilarious. My that mom is, is so con- funny. My mom is convinced that it's because I was on crutches for a good part of my formative adolescence because oh. I was a soccer player. so I That'll always had broken That'll give like, you a lot of strength ankles. in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She's like, well, that's just how your arms formed. But yeah, they they're purposeless.
1: Wow. What a gift. What a gift. <laughs> All right. So Michelle Obama is probably winning. I think so. In most things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I want to get into kind of your experience and how you've really kind of taken to advocacy or just sharing your experience in the last year. We are recording this a couple of days before the one year anniversary of when Roe versus Wade was overturned via the Dobbs decision. So I'm wondering how you felt when you first heard the news that Roe had been overturned. I believe you were pregnant at the time, living in Texas, um, where SB8, I believe, was also in effect. So had that already caused you concern? Can you kind of take us back to that moment and how it kind of hit you?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was outraged first and foremost, just because I have always been um, pro-choice and think that women should have autonomy over their own bodies. So I was furious, but I wasn't concerned for my personal well-being, because as you mentioned, I was pregnant, and I was thrilled to be pregnant. It took us a year and a half to get pregnant. And so an abortion wasn't something that I ever thought I would need or want. And it certainly wasn't something that I thought would be necessary in order to save my life. And I certainly didn't think that it would be something that I needed and couldn't get in 2022 in the United States of America. And I think that's really indicative of you know, the way that these laws have been written is they um, are having these huge implications that people don't realize, because the way that the laws are written are very vague. Um, And also, I think it it says a lot about how much we have stigmatized the word abortion. Um, I too was guilty of thinking, you know, it only applied in certain cases. And I didn't know that it was healthcare that could be denied.
1: Yeah. So can you tell us kind of how, like I said, we played your clip for where you were speaking for the Senate Judiciary Committee when you get into really unflinching detail about your experience. And I'm wondering how and when you came to the decision to speak publicly. That's a huge decision, I'm sure not just for you, but your husband, your family. How does somebody decide that they're going to repeat you know, one of the most painful and traumatic experiences over and over in unflinching detail, which I'm sure you've had to do related to the lawsuit as well. Tell us how you came to that decision and what factors led you to say, I'm ready to speak up.
5: Absolutely. So it wasn't, it wasn't all at once. It was kind of a slow roll, um, a slow burn. So my husband and I knew right away that we wanted to do something. Um, I was still in the hospital. I think I was still in the ICU, and we were talking about it. And I was like, "We have got to do something about this," because we recognized that I was in a position that um, I had all of the right pieces in place and all of the right opportunities and resources that. What happened to me was the best case scenario in my situation. And we talked a lot about how because of the laws that had just gone into effect in Texas, this was going to happen to so many people and they might not be as quote unquote lucky as I was because they might not have the same opportunities or resources. And so we decided very quickly that we were going to do something. Um, And I was actually connected to... um, a different specialist through my OB. And she just said, would you be willing to share what happened to you? She's just collecting data. It would be anonymous. And I was like, yes, sign me up. I'm happy to to explain this horrible thing that happened. Well, from there, it turned into, and by the way, that never even happened. It wasn't an anonymous survey. It was, <laughs> we're going to have a film crew at your house 10 days after you're discharged from the hospital. I did not um, know it was that soon. Oh, my God. Yes, yes. It was 10 days after I was discharged. I was still recovering from sepsis. I had gotten COVID in the hospital. Um, So I had COVID while we filmed that first video ever. But from there, you know, it just kind of kept snowballing and things just kind of kept coming up. And very early on, I said, I'm just gonna say yes to everything because I think it's important to amplify these stories. I have the support to do it. I have the resources to do it. And there are so many people that can't and, people need to hear this story because I think we've made a lot of headway since then. But back then, nobody understood what the laws meant. Even my own family was like, I don't understand why you're not getting health care.
1: Really? Yeah. And so the, the show you're referring to, you did with the meteor and you spoke to Dr. Jennifer Lincoln and Heather obunda that one?
5: Yep, that's right.
1: And so that did, I mean, that, that went mega viral and then suddenly it felt like overnight everybody knew your story. What was that like?
5: Oh gosh, surreal. Um so at first, you know, they warned us, they knew that it was potentially going to go viral and blow up to the extent that it did. We certainly did not expect that. But they warned us, you know, um, don't read the comments, avoid the trolls. And I was like, We're not gonna have trolls, like don't oh, no. about us. Yeah. Oh boy, we had trolls. Um and at first we, you know, we were reading them um, and we did all the things that they told us not to do. We were reading the comments. We were commenting on the trolls, like not—we oh, no. were physically commenting right, right. on the posts, but my yeah. husband and I were talking about it at home. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, we did. You just don't engage with that nonsense. But yeah, it, it was wild. And I warned my family. I said, you know, there's some nasty stuff in there. Just don't read it. Don't pay attention to it. Um, but you know, it didn't really phase us, honestly, because the people that say negative things. It's like, those aren't the people we're trying to converse with anyway. Those are the people whose minds aren't going to be changed. You know, people called us Canadian actors. And it's like, okay, that's just ridiculous. Like, we're just disengaged. Those people aren't going to have a conversation anyway. So, so yeah, so that was pretty wild. And then it started getting picked up um, and retweeted by various public figures. Um, At one point, Vice President Kamala Harris retweeted us. And that was when I was like, okay, this is big. And I remember <laughs> my best friend told me, I, I hadn't even seen it. My best friend was like, oh my gosh, Kamala just retweeted you. And I said, what? And I was like, Josh, Kamala just retweeted us. And we found the tweet and we were reading it and I ripped off my shirt and I started like twirling it around my head and uh-huh. running around the house. Cause oh we God. were like, okay, people are yes, listening. Yes. Like people are paying attention. Um, so yeah, it was really wild. It was, you know, some high highs and some low lows, but we learned very quickly just to ignore a lot of the noise.
1: Yeah. I mean, it did feel like, you know, what people have been warning about for, you know, the decade leading up to that Dobbs decision, your story for, for absolute worst, like sort of hit on a lot of them. And I think it was kind of like the first, certainly, unfortunately, maybe not the first time it, it happened, but because you felt like you had the support to come forward the first time, it could really kind of surface for a lot of people. And it was really just a real wake up call. Like, we weren't kidding. We weren't being dramatic. This, The, the worst case scenario has happened to this woman.
5: Yep, exactly. And, you know, there are still people that will say either it's fake or it's rare or, um... You know, it's being overblown and it's like, uh, I just, I can't even understand how people could say something like that because if you're paying attention, like, yes, I was one of the early ones to come forward, but now there are so many people speaking up, which is great that people have the courage and the voice and feel the support to speak up. It's terrible that it's happening, but it's great that people are speaking up, but it's, it's quickly becoming where my story isn't rare. It's becoming more and more common, and that's why people need to keep speaking up.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you approach your testimony before the Senate in April? By then, this video had come out. I think a lot of people were were aware of your story, and your statement was really vivid and devastating. I lost my breath a few times watching it. I mean, I'm sure the shoot was as well, but I, I'm, if that was in your home or somewhere near your home, I can't imagine Um, getting through that where you were, which does not seem like a very comfortable uh, environment. What was your goal for that statement? And what were you thinking about as you wrote it and knew how many people were going to see it and how the nation's lawmakers were going to be, you know, right before you?
5: Yeah, so it felt very different from that initial video Um, because it's live, right? It's in front of people. It's in front of lawmakers. It's in front of people. Um, the Republicans, right, in particular, that don't want to hear what I have to say. They don't agree with me. they, they, They don't show empathy or sympathy. It was also really different because when we first started speaking out, everything that had to do with the loss of my daughter was still very fresh and very raw. And so that was incredibly painful from an emotional standpoint. When I testified, it was painful, but in a different way. It was painful because I'm just thinking of all of the people who don't have the opportunity to speak up or all of the people who aren't being represented or who aren't being taken care of by their elected officials. And it just hurts me that this is where we're at in our nation's history. But I also was so angry and I continue to be so angry. And when I get fired up, oh, man, there is no stopping me. And so I approached it with a really different mindset because I felt like I was talking directly to the people who can make change and who need to hear what's going on and the impact that their policy is having. So I was extremely well prepared by my team at the Center for Reproductive Rights, who are representing us in the lawsuit, and they're absolutely amazing people. And they prepped me so I knew kind of what to expect. Um... I knew that most of the Republicans would probably just ignore me and not even ask me any questions. And that, that proved to be true. What I, what I wasn't prepared for was what happened after when it kind of went viral and it was all over the internet. Like my dad asked if he could watch it live. And I was like, Oh dad, I doubt it. Like, I don't think this is a big deal. Like maybe it's on C-SPAN or something, but like nobody's going to be tweeting this. Well, little did I know. So I think I'm really glad looking back that I didn't know that it could become such a big deal because it really allowed me to be in that moment with the people sitting right in front of me yeah. and feel like I was talking to them directly.
1: I think one of the reasons it did resonate is because I think you could tell you were really angry and to watch you get through that with that level of anger and that anger was just make. You, I think I think people just felt it and felt you communicate something that We've been trying to, we've been saying to each other, but you have this person that was so profoundly affected by it in front of these people who have nowhere that they can go, even though it sounds like even your own representatives were not very present or interested in what you were saying.
5: That's right. Yeah. Um, Ted Cruz was, I think he was in the room briefly for his five minutes of Um, (laughs) Q&A. He was not there for my testimony or for any follow-up. He didn't address me. I don't think he even looked at me. And Senator Cornyn was in the room, but didn't acknowledge me.
1: I, it, that's, it's just so inhumane to, have, to show so, just no curiosity for even how you're doing.
5: Yeah. And he and I should clarify, he was in the room only for a yeah. portion of it. He wasn't there for the entire thing. So at the end, when I say or when I said, you know, my representatives who aren't even here, they weren't yes, there at that right. point. They had already mm-hmm. left and decided mm-hmm. that they were done with me.
1: Wow. Wow. It is shocking, even though based on previous behavior, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. But like, I think it's important to point out the inhumanity that they display over and over and over again.
5: Well, it's it's in direct opposition to what they want. They want us to be quiet, to sit down, to not speak up, to be invisible. And I was a stark reminder that that's not going to happen anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's sort of been a lot of what we've seen over the past year. Is they they embraced this policy for decades, and here it is, and they have failed to really like embrace the consequences and just try to run away from it or or hide it into weird policies or, or referendums. You've also acknowledged that not all women in this country have the resources or privileges to, you know, survive what you did, which which is a crazy a crazy sentence. Um, how do you think certain privileges? Um, impacted your ability, number one, to get through that experience alive and number two, impact your ability to speak out?
5: Yeah, that's a a really good question. And I'm so glad that you brought that up um, because I think it's a really important piece of all of this and why we continue to speak up and why I feel such a responsibility is because, you know, I've been doing this for several months now and I can continue to do it because of all of all of the things that you're you're asking about. So one of which, first and foremost, I have an outrageously supportive family. Um, everyone is behind me hundred percent. My mom, who used to lean pretty pretty right, now is watching um, you know some left media, and she's sending me all the articles. Yes, and, mom. And, yep, she's become a little warrior. Yeah. Um, and my husband's family is is just the same. I mean, just so incredibly supportive. Oh. My husband, I mean, oh my. Lanta, that guy, it the strongest, most supportive, most amazing dude on the planet.
1: Even just um, watching him in the <laughs> videos, you're just like, it's not the point, but it's like he loves her so much. I, you know, can just tell. I
3: know. Yeah.
5: You know, and through all of this, you know, when tragedy strikes yeah. in a marriage, sometimes it can it can cause friction, it can make people grow apart. I said this the other day to somebody. I didn't think I could love him anymore. And every day I love him more and more. I mean, it is truly just remarkable how much it's brought us together and how much we've been on the same team through everything. But then also support from friends. Our friends are incredible. Our extended family is incredible. We have now all of these new friends through this advocacy work that we've been doing. They're all incredibly supportive. Some of them are strangers on social media. Um, So the support has just been immeasurable but then also there are a lot of tangible things that got me through as well so for example um, my husband and I both have jobs where we can work from home we can take time off um when I was in that three-day waiting period not sure what was going to happen or when it was going to happen my work gave me so much space so did Josh's and when I went septic in a matter of 15 minutes Josh was able to leave his his work for the day. I mean, we were home, but he was able to drop work for the day and, you know, rush me to the hospital. And not everybody has a job like that. Not everybody can take time off or just say, Hey, I'm going to be calling in sick for an indefinite period of time. And I don't know when it's going to start. Like that's, that's very rare. Um, We don't have other children that we had to arrange childcare for. What would have happened if I went into septic shock and now it's like, okay, I have 15 minutes until I potentially die and I have these three other children that I need to find childcare for. We live near, very near, really good healthcare systems. We have great health insurance. You know, we have all of these pieces in place. And if we didn't have one of those things, this story could have gone very differently. And we recognize that there are so many people that don't have all of those resources and opportunities. Then on top of that, after making it through and surviving the hospital and sepsis and all that, we're, we're able to continue to speak out because, again, we have the support of family and friends and employers, but also we are not afraid of being marginalized. We're not afraid of prosecution. We're not afraid of some of the backlash that comes for people who are minorities or for people who have been marginalized Um, We know that we're very fortunate and that we are privileged enough to be able to speak out without fear. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that, you know, having you getting to another state was not an option for you. You were that sick. But for other women in the lawsuit, they had to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to get to other states to make that space to to be able to have that procedures to make that experience less agonizing, you are part of more than a dozen women who are part of the lawsuit against the state of Texas in an effort to block some of those restrictions on abortion access. So can you explain the kind of specific goal of these lawsuits and what you all as plaintiffs have in common?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So the specific goal from our legal team is to get the court to clarify um, what the term medical exception means and to broaden that and make it more clear. On a deeper, more personal level, we very much want to educate people so that they understand what these laws are doing to real people and the greater, more broad sweeping implications that these bans are having. I think we've, as I mentioned, I think we've already made some headway there, which has been really encouraging and and really promising. But now it's become, I think, even a little bit bigger for me on a personal level, especially as, as a plaintiff is somebody had to be the first to do this and we're the first to bring a suit of this nature in the post Dobbs world. And so it's kind of like ripping the bandaid off, right? Once somebody does it, we're hoping that it's going to be a domino effect and we're hoping that other people will see, okay, these folks in Texas are taking action. I had a similar situation in XYZ Mm -hmm. state because this is now happening in so many states, which is appalling. But maybe they'll find their voice and they'll have the courage to file similar suits mm-hmm. because of what we're doing. And if anybody is listening to this and is thinking about that, get in touch with me. If you need support, I will tell you what it's like to be a plaintiff. I will encourage you to do it. Working with the Center for Reproductive Rights has been so incredibly rewarding and amazing. I mean, truly, they are the most wonderful people. Um, and I would be happy to be a support to anybody else who's considering it.
1: That is that is very uh, generous. I can confirm you're very receptive in the DMs. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Always watching I,
5: them. People, people message me a lot and I read every single one of them because a lot of times people are telling me their trauma or their grief yeah. and I'm not going to let that sit unread. I mean, that's very personal and you know, I want to give space for those people and yeah. people are so lovely and I want people to know that I appreciate their support. It's very motivating.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like you could leave them unread for like a couple of minutes. Like, what do you do? How do you protect your, do you compartmentalize or like, is this a part, like, I'm sure you've been in like so much therapy, but how do you take care of your mind? And because I'm sure you also want to be able to make this sustainable. So, you know, what is your support system? Like, how are you able to continually to engage so deeply and so personally?
5: Yeah. So first of all, tons of therapy. You are correct. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I tell my I tell my therapist all the time that she's part of the crew that saved my life. She's she's wonderful. Um, I call my mom probably three times a day. You know, we're very close. I call my sister a lot. My husband, Josh and I are very supportive of one another. So that's Mm -hmm. been really great. I am somebody who heals and processes through exercise and especially like very vigorous exercise. So if I'm having a really tough day, well, you can bet that's going to be a yeah. fast run <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> or that's going to be a hilly bike ride because yeah, I've got yeah. to get some energy up. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I have learned that I do need to compartmentalize a little bit. So if something is getting a lot of media attention, there's a milestone with the case or whatever. And I know yeah. that there's going to be a lot of flurry going on, a lot of outreach I'll usually carve out a space in the day where I feel like, okay, mentally I'm good to go through some of these messages. I'm good to look at some of these comments or posts or whatever. And I'll give myself maybe an hour and yeah. then, and then I shut it down and I walk my dog or I call my mom or something. So i um, just making space for it, but not getting, not getting too into the weeds. I still, yeah,
1: yeah. I still it, kinda, like contained to exactly. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're in Texas and the last year has seen voters in a lot of states really loudly affirm their support for abortion rights and given the opportunity in places like Montana, Kentucky. Still a lot of states, including Texas, are, you know, we say a lot, kind of held hostage by lawmakers who have pretty unpopular opinions, especially unpopular anti-abortion opinions But in a lot of states, there's just due to gerrymandering and just really intense minority rule. It's not a matter of just showing up to vote. It's not always that easy. I know our listeners who live in super ruby red states can get a little frustrated when they just hear like, oh, the state's a lost cause or just get out and vote. So I'm, I'm sure you talk about the issue of abortion with your neighbors and community members, people that reach out to you. Do you think the majority of Texans really want to live in a state that where this happened to you that threatens women's lives? You know, what do you think politicians think they gain by enforcing these laws?
5: Well, I don't think that most Texans want to live in a state where this is happening. I don't think most Texans or most Americans, I mean, we know that most Americans do not support full and total abortion bans. I mean, that's been proven time and time again. I think, to your point, people are having a difficult time having their voices heard and having their votes matter because of things like gerrymandering and because of extremely restrictive voting, uh, you know, enforcements. And I think it's it's becoming harder and harder for us to make change just by voting because of those policies that these same lawmakers are enacting. Um, But I do think that, you know, we're kind of entering this new phase post Dobbs, where I don't know that previously people were voting on social issues as yeah. much because we we weren't having our rights stripped away from us as much as we are now. I mean, we are literally going backwards in time. And so it really sucks that we're having to fight the same fight again that we already fought and won, by the way. Mm-hmm. But I think that once people see their rights taken away from them, the shift is going to happen where people start voting on social issues. Um, yeah you know, more, more prominently.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was sort of another question I had for you. You know I've heard a lot of commentators and even activists say that the end of Roe is incredibly tragic, um, but it was never strong enough. And if it launches a slow kind of state by state reclamation of abortion rights, that might make our rights even stronger. Uh, Do you have hope that that will happen? And and what is it like to hear that as somebody who like, frankly, nearly died because Roe was overturned?
5: Of course, I hope that happens. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I don't know if it will. I don't know if it will in our lifetime, Yeah. Um, But I know that, you know, there's a lot of really pissed off people right now. And I've seen so much mobilization and I've seen so much activism and so much unity and strength. And so I am very hopeful, and I am very optimistic. I think we have tools today that they didn't have when they fought this fight the first time. Um, And I think that those are all good things that will be helpful. But, yeah, it's going to be a long road and we're going to need everybody on board to fight this fight.
1: Do you have, you know, community members or neighbors or people that know you that just sort of have come up to you person and been like, I had no idea. I had no idea that's what abortion ban meant. Like, I oh. had no idea that could lead to what happened to you. That's not what I want, even if somebody thought that they were anti-abortion.
5: Oh, yeah. Even our own family. So we grew up in Indiana, so Midwest, pretty red, right? Pretty conservative. And even our own families. And family friends were like, I had no idea. And so as a result of what happened to me and what's going on in Texas, they are taking action in their own states to either prevent or to overturn or to just voice anger. Um, but it's been really powerful to see people change their minds and many times their votes.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. What from the past year has, or since you've started, you know, really engaging and speaking out about this, has anything in particular, whether it's the reaction or policy, what has anything surprised you? Has anything happened where, you know, when you were sitting doing that interview for Meteor, you would have never expected?
5: Well, I never would have expected any of this. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, it has been a surreal couple of months, but um, really inspiring and really motivating. I think the biggest surprise to me has been just how good people are at their core. I mean, people ask me sometimes, you know, do you get a lot of negativity? Do you get a lot of hate? Do you get a lot of nasty comments? And I know that they're out there. I choose not to read them. What I choose to give my attention to and give my space to is all of the people who reach out and are expressing their love and their support and their gratitude. Um, Because truly at their core, I think most
1: people are really good. Do you feel like the kind of immediate momentum that we kind of saw, um, in the immediate months after Dobbs, how do you think that we can sort of, it's interesting because now I feel like I'm sounding like the pundits that I was making fun of around the midterms who were like, it's all about the economic concerns now. But I mean, I really feel like this is something women are going to be really pissed off about until it's fixed. Oh, totally. And
5: I think, you know, I think what you're getting at is, will we lose momentum?
1: Will this movement run
5: out of steam? Um, I certainly hope not. And I think until something does change, this is going to keep happening and it's going to get worse. And maybe the momentum won't be as public or as large or as national, but it's going to have all of these ripple effects on local levels, on personal levels, because this is going to happen to your sister, your aunt, your niece, your wife, your best friend, right? Like this is going to keep happening. And so that momentum is going to I think, continue, um, even if it's at a base level, because people are going to see it in their real lives and they're going to get pissed off all over again. And then hopefully that bubbles up and people continue speaking up and we just continue making noise and talking about it and bringing it to the surface, because I think that's what it takes for a movement like this to not lose momentum.
1: Mm -hmm. Right, absolutely. It's not like something was just outlawed that's not going to happen anymore. As people have said forever, um, you can outlaw abortion, but you can't really ban it. It's still going to happen. And yeah, over time, it it will take some state legislator's wife having experience similar to yours to change. And of course, we wish they saw us as human without that. But unfortunately, it's inevitable that that this will become very personal to people over time.
5: That's exactly right. It reminds me of you know, the early days of COVID when people were like, oh, it's not real or it's not a big deal. Oops, well, now you're in the ICU with COVID. You still think it's not real and it's not a big deal? I mean, this is going to affect people on a deeply personal level.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. What can people do to support you and your efforts? Where would you want to direct attention to people who also want to keep that momentum going?
5: Great question. Thank you for asking. Um, First and foremost, I would recommend if people feel like it's right for them to donate their time or their money. Um, their local abortion funds and abortion providers certainly will take volunteers, certainly will take donations. Um, I have obviously a deep personal connection to the Center for Reproductive Rights. Um, they would, of course, appreciate your support as well. And, you know, if nothing else, just keep talking about it, just keep listening, just keep making space for these stories. Um, and, and have those tough conversations with your friends and family that, that don't want to have a conversation because that's what it's going to take. I know it's hard, but that's what we're going to have to do.
1: Yeah. If you can do it with John Cornyn and Ted Cruz in the room, <laughs> I think we can, we can do it with our loose acquaintances who say something a little weird about abortion.
5: <laughs> hey, you know, to, to each their own. Everybody's <laughs> fighting their own fight.
1: Yeah. Thank you so, so much, Amanda. That is our show for today. Until the end of democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman, and this is The Betches Sub Podcast. Bye. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Rebecca sous Editing by Rebecca sous Social media by Amanda Duberman and Bridget Swartz. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails at suppod at Betches.com. Batches.